Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we are continuing our series called A Story of Change, where we are walking through the book of Acts from the New Testament, and we're really looking at the birth of the church, and today the passage we're looking at is quite literally the day that the church begins, and that what we do as Jesus followers when we say we're part of a larger universal church, that church began in the very passage that we're going to look at today. Now last week, we were looking at a passage where the apostles and the early believers, about 120 of them, were gathered together, and they're trying to figure out this question of what do we do now? How do we follow Jesus? And we saw Peter take passages from the Old Testament and say, well, I think this is how it applies to what we're doing right now in this meantime as we're waiting for the fulfillment of what Jesus promised to us. And so today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to go through the first half of Acts chapter 2, and next week we're going to finish out Acts 2. We're going to split this day of Pentecost in half. And so picking up right in Acts 2, verse 1, Luke starts his narrative this way. He says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And we already know from last week that's about 120 people in Jerusalem. They're gathered together. And this day of Pentecost, we think about this as like Pentecost Sunday, but that day, Pentecost, actually doesn't refer to what happens on this day. It's actually the Greek name for the festival that's happening in Jerusalem at this exact time that Luke is writing about. Because Pentecost means 50 days. And so this is 50 days after the first day of the Jewish Passover. And you might remember that Passover, the end of the Passover week, is when Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead three days later. And so we're less than 50 days from Jesus' death and resurrection. And this festival of weeks, this Pentecost festival, was a festival of celebration and thanksgiving. It was also known as, it was kind of the Feast of Weeks, it was the celebration after the grain harvest was finished. And so at this time for this festival, people from all over the known world, faithful Jews from all over the place, would travel into Jerusalem to bring an offering to the temple. And because this was a time period that usually has better weather than the Passover time period, the festival of weeks was usually larger than Passover in terms of how many people would travel to Jerusalem for this festival that was an important part of their faith in God. And so on the day of Pentecost, the believers are gathered together. And Luke tells us this, He says, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. Now in this moment, this is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and Luke is struggling to figure out the words to describe this. And so that's why he says, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appears and settles on the believers. And this moment... This is the Spirit arriving. The Spirit that Jesus promised would empower the early church arrives and descends and settles on them. And so Luke wants us, his reader, to recognize the day of Pentecost, what happens on this event, this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave earlier in Acts 1.8. Now, sometimes when we look at this passage and we look at this arrival of the Holy Spirit in this amazing way of tongues of fire settling on people, we sometimes get caught up in the method. 
and we think, well, that's never happened to me. And maybe if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and you're like, well, in my faith journey with Christ, that's never happened to me. I've never witnessed that happen. And we can get caught up in the method rather than realizing that it's about the focus of this indwelling of the Spirit with them. And so we need to realize sometimes that this exact method of the tongues of fire appearing, it doesn't happen again in Scripture. In fact, Luke uses a multitude of different words to describe when believers receive the Holy Spirit later on in Acts. And we're going to see those in the weeks ahead when we get to those passages. But what happens is a little crazy. What happens is a little unheard of and astounding, and if you're reading this for the first time or hearing this passage for the first time, you might scratch your head a little at this next verse, because Luke tells us this. He says, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And so at this moment, all the believers, they start speaking different languages, this gift of the Holy Spirit allows them to speak languages that they did not know. And you might be thinking, whoa, this is weird. And it is. But this is the Spirit moving and doing something really important. Because if you remember, this is a festival moment. This is a time when Jerusalem is filled with people from all corners of the earth. And it says this in Acts 2, verses 5 and 6. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And just to clarify, sorry, when I said all the earth, I mean the known world of the Roman Empire. As far as the Roman Empire knew that the world existed, there was people present from those nations in Jerusalem at this time. And so everyone comes running and they're bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And so in a moment, a few verses down in verses 9 and 10, Luke gives a description, a list of the countries that they come from, and they are from very far ranges, far ranging corners of the Roman Empire. And so at this time period in the first century, being multilingual was the norm. Most people would speak two languages well and probably three, two or three more languages, you know, they'd know a bit of words enough to get by. Because every nation, every area would have their own dialect, their own primary language. And then Greek was the unifying language that almost everyone spoke. And it was kind of the the common trade language. Like if you went to another nation, another city that was far away, you would be speaking Greek. And that would be the common language. And then on top of that, if you were a faithful Jew, you would also know Hebrew on top of that. You would know some of the language that your scriptures were written in because that was often the language being used in the synagogue meetings. And then anything to do with Rome that was the military or the legal system, court cases, would be spoken in Latin. And so with all these devout Jews that have traveled into Jerusalem for the festival, there are many, many languages being represented. And the common language you would hear if you were walking through the streets of Jerusalem would be Greek. But in this moment, when they all come rushing to find the source of this mighty sound like a roaring wind that happened, you know, we don't know what they think maybe happened. Maybe they think that an earthquake has happened and they're rushing to help or who knows what they were thinking in that moment. But as they arrive, they are bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by this group of believers that were mostly from Galilee. And they're thinking, how could these Galilean people know our language that they are hearing? And so what's happening in this exact moment 
is this is the Holy Spirit empowering the church. And the Holy Spirit has given these believers this gift of tongues, this gift of being able to speak a different language for the purpose of the gospel. And we're going to take a little detour right now into spiritual gifts. And this is something we're going to see pop up more later in Acts, is that part of the role of the Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus earlier in the gospels, is that the Spirit gives gifts of empowerment to followers of Jesus to build up the church. And, you know, the baseline scripture that we need to know about this is 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It comes from one of Paul's letters where he says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. Every follower of Jesus has spiritual gifts, whether they've discovered them or not. And those gifts have a purpose that is always to help other people. And together, all of these gifts are what empower and give the church its ability to share the gospel and to communicate and to build God's kingdom here on earth. Now, Two years ago, we did an in-depth series on spiritual gifts. And while it's not here on YouTube, if you go to our website, you can find that series in our podcast archives or wherever you subscribe to our podcast. You can find those series that were called Giver and Gifts and Supernatural Gifts that dive through all the spiritual gifts. But I'm going to give a little recap on the gift of tongues before we continue on in our narrative of Acts. And the gift of tongues is a specific spiritual gift the Holy Spirit gives. And Bruce L. Bugby describes it this way. He says, the gift of tongues allows one to speak, worship, or pray in a language unknown to the speaker. And so there are three main forms of the gift of tongues. And you might have experienced one of these if you have experience in the church before, or maybe this is something completely new to you. And so there are these three forms of the gift of tongues. And the first one is the one that we're seeing in Acts. And this is the ability to speak a foreign language that is supernaturally given by the Holy Spirit to communicate the message of Jesus. And this happens in this moment in Acts 2. And that's the only time this form of it happens in Scripture, is at this day of Pentecost when all the people from all the nations of the Roman Empire hear their own language being spoken by the early believers. And the second form and the most common form of the gift of tongues is what's called the adorative form, which is a a variation of the word to, to adore. And this is a form of tongues that is used in worship and prayer in a heavenly language. So it's not an earthly language that the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to speak in that moment. It is a language of your spirit speaking to God's spirit, speaking to the Holy Spirit. And this is a form that is the most common example of the gift of tongues. And it does not need to be interpreted because this is about that person in the moment being able to worship God in a heavenly language. And the third form is the form of tongues that maybe we have heard about or we've seen experienced in a church. And that is tongues can be an authoritative communication from God, meaning that this is when there is the gift of tongues is a message being given to a local group of believers by the Holy Spirit for a certain purpose. And so this is providing instructions and revelation to that group of believers. But this form of the gift of tongues has some special parameters around it that, that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. And this form of the gift of tongues always requires interpretation, meaning someone else will have the gift of interpretation and will be able to confirm that what has been spoken and translate that into English or whatever the dominant language of that gathering is. I mean, and this 
message always requires discernment before it can be followed. Meaning that if the gift of tongues is giving an authoritative message, someone has to interpret it, and then the church needs to take the time to discern and pray and confirm it against Scripture before they act upon it. And so out of these three forms of the gift of tongues, we are seeing the first one in Acts 2. This ability to speak foreign languages. And there is an Old Testament parallel in the moment that's happening that Luke doesn't explicitly mention in Acts, but when we read this, we recognize this is a parallel to a story from the Old Testament. And if you go to the very beginning of Scripture, you go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is how the ancient Israelites understood their origins as a people and understood their or- the origins of the earth. And in Genesis 11, there's this story of the Tower of Babel. And maybe you've heard that, that term, the Tower of Babel, before. And it is this story where, at the time, humanity only has one language. Anyone can speak to anyone. There's no language barrier, no gaps. And with humanity being united in this way, they choose to build a great tower, a great monument to what humanity can achieve together. And they start building this tower to their own greatness, essentially declaring that humanity itself is like God and is able to do this together. And so as a result, God scatters humanity with the creation of different languages. And the people have to split into finding who speaks their language that they suddenly know. And that is how the different nations of the earth are formed. And so in Genesis 11, God is scattering humanity with the creation of different languages. But in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is using languages to draw people from all corners of the earth to the message of Christ. Now, this is not a reversal of the Tower of Babel. God is not giving Christians their own language that they can speak to other Christians with. But this is rather a sort of like a fulfillment or a redemption of the Tower of Babel story, of God using all these multiple languages to draw people to understand who Jesus is. And so now we see the reaction of the crowd jumping back to Acts 2, where Acts 2 verses 7 and 8 starts and says, they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages about the wonderful things God has done. They are amazed by this ability of the local Galileans to speak their own languages. Now, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And I find this inclusion of Luke very fascinating because he includes the wide range of responses of the people in the crowd. There is bewilderment and amazement of wondering, how is this possible? And then over in this other portion of the crowd, there's the skeptics saying, no, 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 they're just drunk. Now, why I think this is so important to this story is this is a theme that we'll see continued through Acts, that when the Holy Spirit does something incredible, that skepticism and questioning are normal responses to the supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit. When God moves and does something in a way that we haven't seen before or experienced with our own eyes, our first response is often skepticism. We're wondering, wait a second, how is this possible? And the church does not have a good track history of dealing with people's questions and dealing with doubt. And this is something that 
we as the church need to get more comfortable with skepticism and doubt, especially in our world today, and being able to engage in conversations about things that we doubt, about things we question, about things that we are deconstructing about our own beliefs, so that we can actually have conversations that lead us deeper into our faith. And being able to handle people's questions well is something that here at Grand Valley, we really tried hard to do well at that, to tackle questions together, to wrestle through difficult topics, and engage. When we read something in Scripture, we think, this is almost too crazy to believe. This is almost too crazy to believe it happened. So we dive into and we say, why did this happen? And so at this moment, when people in the crowd are talking about what's happening, and some people are just amazed, some people are questioning, some people are saying they're just drunk. And so in this moment, Peter steps forward, and Peter speaks to the crowd, and this is what he shouts to the crowd. He says, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. And I have to imagine that probably got a bit of a chuckle or a laugh from the crowd, because Peter could have said something about, you know, Being drunk usually doesn't give you the ability to speak. It usually takes it away. But at nine o'clock in the morning when this happens, he says, no, 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 these people are not drunk. So he needs to give an explanation. And so Peter draws upon their Bible, their Hebrew scriptures, to find an explanation for what has just happened. And so with the Holy Spirit's empowerment on Peter, he begins to quote, from the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. And here's what he says. No, no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And now he starts quoting from Joel. He says, In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And so Peter is drawing back and saying, no, no, what you are experiencing right now is the pouring out of the Spirit that our prophet Joel spoke centuries ago. Now, there's something, though, that Peter did that's interesting. Peter is making an interpretive translation choice in his quote because at the beginning of this, he actually changes the words that Joel spoke. And what he does is he puts in a different phrase. So the original in Joel 2, 28 says, then after doing all those things, and then it goes on to talk about the pouring out of the Spirit. But Peter begins his quotation and he changed that phrase. He says, in the last days. Now, Peter is making a statement to the crowd. And remember, he is talking to devout, faithful Jews who have traveled into Jerusalem. The majority of the people there would know this quotation. They would have heard it being taught to them and spoken to them in synagogue services by traveling rabbis. They would recognize, hold on a second, Peter, you changed something here. What are you saying with how you changed this? And so when Peter declares in the last days at the start of this passage, he's not declaring that the world is going to end. This is not an end of the world promise. What he's referring to was a common rabbinical belief, meaning a teaching of the rabbis in that first century time, belief that the age of the Messiah, meaning the time period when God's anointed has come to earth, 
would be marked by God's spirit being poured out on Israel. So when he says, in the last days, people in the crowd would start recognizing, oh, he's talking about the new age of the Messiah, which they believed would be the age that would carry until whenever the end of the world would be. It's not a short time. It's not a long time. They didn't have a time period on how long that would be, but just this is when the Messiah will be with his people. And so Peter is making this declaration that this scripture from Joel is fulfilled in this moment, that the Spirit has been poured out specifically on Israel. Now, at this moment in time, Peter has not yet realized that the Holy Spirit is being given to everyone, to both Jews and Gentiles, anyone who wasn't a descendant of Abraham. So Peter is speaking to a Jewish crowd and is talking about the Spirit being poured out upon them. And later on in Acts, this is going to create a tension in the early church as people who are not Jewish start receiving the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and the apostles and the other church have to wrestle through what is this mean. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. But this is part of how Luke is foreshadowing all these things that are going to come up later in the book of Acts. But Peter goes on and he continues and he says, continuing to quote from Joel, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. Now, this prophecy is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic doesn't mean end of the world when we're talking about scripture. Apocalyptic just means that this is a genre of speaking, of way of revealing truth coded in metaphor and imagery. And so we don't know exactly what Peter means when he quotes this portion, these next two verses of Joel 2. But I think that there's a a solid chance that Peter is actually referring to Jesus' death. That on the day when Jesus was hanging on the cross, three of the Gospels remark that the sky went dark for about three hours. And they talk about how these signs happened, like the temple curtain in the temple in Jerusalem that separates the most holy place that represented God's presence with his people was torn in half. And so maybe Peter is referring to saying that these signs and wonders that Joel talked about, but Joel maybe didn't even know exactly what they would be. Maybe Peter is saying that was when Jesus was on the cross. We don't know for sure. But Peter continues and goes on to this next verse. And I think this is why he picked the Joel 2 passage. He says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And those were the words that Joel said centuries earlier. And Peter quotes this now, connecting the arrival of the Holy Spirit, of this empowerment of the Spirit being poured out upon Israel, being poured out on Jesus' followers. He is connecting that forward to this verse, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for Peter, this name of the Lord is Jesus. And this is the statement that is going to cause a massive changes in the world. Because Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel to tell his Jewish audience that the event they just witnessed of people speaking in their own languages of this evidence of the Holy Spirit arriving, they have witnessed 
the announcement of a new era in God's plan to redeem the whole world back to himself. And the path to that is what Peter just quoted from Joel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that the name of the Lord that we call upon, that Jesus is God himself, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in one person is the Trinity, is the God that we know and we worship, and that it is God's plan to redeem and renew the whole world back to himself. And so next week, we're going to carry on in Acts 2, and we're going to see Peter's speech to the crowd where he backs up his claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're going to look at how Peter uses their own scripture to say, look, all of this points to what we all just have experienced over the last few years of Jesus' ministry. Now, usually when we look at a passage like Acts 2, when we look at scripture as a whole, and when we talk about it here in church, we're often looking for, we ask questions about, okay, so what's our application of this? How does this shape and influence our faith and the way we walk with God? And oftentimes I'll end a message with a couple questions for us to wrestle through and think through. Because I believe that when we wrestle through questions, that those are when we give opportunities for the Spirit to speak to us, for Scripture to speak to us and reveal what God is drawing us towards. But this passage of Acts 2 is different. This passage of Acts 2 isn't about teaching us how to live differently as a follower of Jesus. Instead, this is a passage of Scripture that tells us about our heritage as followers of Jesus. And so if you've followed Jesus for a while, if you've put your trust in him, or maybe you're listening to this message at home and you've been questioning and you've been seeking answers and seeking the truth about who Jesus is and is purpose and meaning and really found in Jesus. Did God really reveal himself through Jesus? Is Jesus who he said he is? Maybe those are some of the questions you're wrestling with. And this is a passage that addresses some of those questions. Because in this passage, we have seen Luke right away putting the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus gave just a number of days earlier that the Holy Spirit would arrive. And even earlier than that, During the Last Supper, the last evening Jesus had with his disciples, he promised them then about the Holy Spirit that would come and empower them. And so Luke is including this passage because he wants us to recognize that Jesus fulfills the promises he made. And when we look at a promise that Jesus made, we can know that that promise will come true or it already has come true in the past. And passages like this give us this origin of the church. And I'm talking not Little C Church, not like just Grand Valley Church or the church down the street from wherever you are, but the universal church. Recognizing the church as the body of believers worldwide that have a common origin that go all the way back to this day in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit is poured out for the church to be empowered so that the church can move forward and carry out the mission that Jesus gave. And so when we look at a passage like this, for me, what this evokes in me is thankfulness, is thankfulness that Jesus is who he says he is, that the Holy Spirit is given to us as Jesus' followers to empower us and give us the ability to do the things that we don't think we could do on our own, to give Peter the courage to stand before a massive crowd and make these declarations that would shake the world to its core. And so 
what I want to encourage you with this passage this week is just maybe to think back that everything that God promised and planned and set into motion, his great plan of redeeming the whole world to himself, is revealed through Christ and is revealed through the Spirit. And us as Jesus' followers have that mantle, that mission given to us to continue revealing God to the world around us. And that may seem daunting, that may seem challenging, but I hope it also makes us feel a bit grateful to recognize that we are part of God's plan to shape the world. And so this week, I want to encourage you to maybe read ahead in Acts 2, to go ahead and read, maybe reread the passages we looked at today and to read ahead into Peter's speech and how this day becomes the beginning of the church. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for being here for our online services. I hope you have an amazing week, and I hope to see you online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening.